Welcome, everybody, to the third message in our series, Who is Jesus? Important question for us to answer. And today, we're going to be talking about faith. What is faith? You know, when Jesus is often referred to, he's spoken of as Savior. And the word Savior also means healer. And Jesus came to heal our lives. I'm not just talking about physical healing. I'm talking about healing of our souls, healing of our relationship with God, healing of our minds, healing of our past, healing of our present. But how do you receive God's healing? And that's what the team was talking about in that video. It is by faith. But what is faith? And for us as believers, what is saving faith? Not just the the faith where I put my trust in Jesus, but my ongoing faith journey, that ongoing salvation, so to speak. What is that all about? How do I have great faith? What does it mean to have great faith? So in order to answer that question, I want you to turn open to the Gospel of Luke where we've been in our journey. So we look, listen, and interact with Jesus and become his followers. Doesn't matter whether you're a believer or not. It's good to have you on the journey. If you don't have a Bible of your own, can't afford one, let us know, we'll give you one. While you're doing that, let me remind you that in 2017, we want to worship God passionately. We want to attend regularly. We want to give generously. We want to serve humbly. Make that kind of our goal for 2017. I hope you'll stay with it. All right, you've had a chance to get into Luke chapter 7. And I want to introduce you to a man with no name. But we know he was a Roman soldier in verse 1 of chapter 7, it says, When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. Now already there's some questions in the text. For instance, what are these religious leaders doing interacting with a Gentile, especially a Roman soldier. I mean, they're risking contamination, becoming unclean. These Roman soldiers are an occupying force. They're the enemy of the Jews. So why is Jesus hanging out with them? Or I mean, why, is the, why are the Jews hanging out with them? Second question is, why are these religious leaders going to meet Jesus. I mean, everything we know about the religious leaders is that they couldn't, they couldn't stand Jesus. He was a threat to them. So already there's a lot of curious things here. Why do these religious Jews hang out with a Gentile and why are they going to Jesus to ask for a miracle on behalf of the Gentile? Verse four tells us why. It says, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves, remember that, this man deserves to have you do this. Because he loves our nation, has built our synagogue, so Jesus went with them. Well, this guy's their benefactor. In other words, uh, this guy's a sugar daddy, so to speak. He has been really good to their people, and he's built them a church. He's built them a synagogue. Why did he do that? More than likely, he's a God-fearer. And a God-fearer was a term given to Gentiles in those days who gave up on all the Roman deities, and they decided to just worship Yahweh, the God of the Jews. 
And so they would worship Yahweh and they would try to keep the law and some of the customs and traditions. And because they worshiped Yahweh, they respected Yahweh's people, the Jews. And so they would be kind to them, as these men said. He's been very generous to us. He's built us a synagogue. Which begs another question. Why didn't the guy go to Jesus himself? I mean, why not go to Jesus on your own and say, Jesus, would you come and heal my servant? Well, we find out why he doesn't. It goes on and says, he was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to Jesus, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you But say the word and my servant will be healed for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one to go and he goes. That one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. All right, let's step back from the story for a moment because there's some interesting things going on here. The religious leaders show up and they say to Jesus, Jesus, you need to come and heal this guy's servant because he deserves it. He deserves it because he's been so good to us and he built a synagogue. He's a very righteous individual. He deserves it. This other guy, when he knows that Jesus is coming, sends some friends to stop Jesus and says to them, don't come all the way. I don't deserve it. I am unworthy. What's going on here? You got two paradigms. You got the religious leaders who believe that Your relationship with God is all about self-righteousness. It's all about how good you are. So the better you are, the more you can expect from God. That's why they work so hard at keeping the law. That's why they work so hard at the customs and traditions. It's why they work so hard at living highly moral lives. But the problem with living that way and only that way is then the tendency is to think that God owes you something back that God's kind of obliged to you because look how good you've been. Look how well you have behaved. That's why they come to Jesus and said, the guy, the guy deserves this. And unfortunately, all of us, myself included, struggle with that mindset. We all believe that if we're good enough, we deserve something back from God. I remember when my, my brother, his name is Mark, and I were boys, We went to my dad one day, and we said to him, Dad, would you buy us a minibike? Anybody ever have a a minibike? All right, those things are a blast, aren't they? So much fun. And we wanted one so badly, and we had a proposition for my dad. I said to my dad, Dad, if if, if Mark, my brother, and I, if we can be really good for a whole month, like we don't fight, argue with, with... with you or mom or with each other, if we're really, really good for a whole month, will you get us a mini bike? My dad had no problem saying, absolutely, I'll get you one. <laughs> now, how many students do we have here, junior high, high school? Have you ever tried to bargain with your parents? We do it all the time, right? Have you ever had your parents try to bargain with you? Interesting, huh? Yeah, works both ways. So, you laugh, but I want you to know that for an entire day, my brother and I did not fight or argue. <laughs> and then we just fell apart. We just fell apart. So at the end of the month, we went back to my dad and we said, Dad, I know, 
I know we did fight a bit with each other. We did argue. We didn't really, you know, always listen to you and mom. I know we weren't perfect. But dad, listen, we were so much better this month than the previous months. I mean, we made a really big effort. And by the way, dad, I thought I was very clever with this. And by the way, dad, you're kind of lucky you don't have other kids for your sons. Because there's some really bad kids out there. We know, we go to school with them. And the things that they do and get in trouble for, you're lucky we don't do those kinds of things. You're lucky we make it so easy for you. I mean, you kind of owe us the mini bike. Have you ever done that with God? I mean, think about it for just a minute. Haven't there been times when, when things just aren't going well in your life? Maybe it's health, maybe it's finances, maybe it's a job, relationship, I don't know, whatever it is. And so you do this inventory and you just go, okay, you know, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm not doing that, I'm not doing that, I'm doing this, I'm trying my best at that. Yes, I did that, but I said I was sorry. And we go to God and we say, God, I did the whole checklist. I've been actually pretty good. I'm really pretty good compared to so-and-so, but I mean, I, I've been pretty good, God. I don't understand why you're doing this to me. Now, what have I just done? I've obligated God to me. My idea is that if I'm good enough, God owes me something. And the reality is none of us are good enough, and God doesn't owe us a thing. And God doesn't owe us a thing. And as long as we think that God kind of owes us something, what happens is we diminish the way and the means by which God can work in our lives. That's why God could never do anything with those religious Pharisees. They always acted like God owed them. It was all about their righteousness. But the centurion, on the other hand, I mean, this Gentile guy, on the other hand, he gets it. He knows that Jesus is coming and he just says, I don't deserve to be in your presence. Now, I don't know exactly what he believed about Jesus at that point in time, but he knew that something bigger than him and than anybody else that he knew was coming to his house and he was unworthy of having Jesus in the room with him. And that's the attitude that Jesus wants us to keep and have in our hearts and our minds. I'm not talking about self-deprecation. I'm, I'm talking about the sense of my, my brokenness, the sense of my desperate need for him, my sense of my absolute dependence on him, because it's in that mode that, that God can really come flooding into my life, and I can really know who he is. As, but as long as I'm in the way, there's going, to be, there's going to be trouble. So look what happens to the text. I love this. It says, so Jesus went with him. He was not far from the house when the centurion's servant friend says to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. And Jesus hears the whole thing, and evidently Jesus is amazed at this guy and says, okay, I won't come. But look what happens. Verse 9. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I've not found such great faith in Israel. I look at all you Jews, those of you who know the law, who keep the law, look at you religious leaders. I haven't found faith like I see in this Gentile in all of you. Then the men who had been sent by the centurion returned to the house and found the servant well. And I just want to dial down into this issue of great faith for just a moment. I mean, Jesus says, I've not found such great faith. But be careful with that. Because Jesus' emphasis is not so much on the faith itself. Jesus isn't, in other words, saying, look at this guy. Somehow from within himself, he was able to manufacture this great faith. And that makes him worthy somehow of having a miracle. Now what the text is saying. 
The text isn't really talking about faith. It is talking about the object of faith. It is who Christ is that gives the man the capacity to have faith. It is who Christ is that generates this faith in his life. That's why it's important to answer the question, who is Jesus? If I really believe he is the son of God, shouldn't that inspire great faith in my life? But we have a tendency to look to ourselves for the faith. I mean, the religious leaders were men of faith. The problem was their faith was misplaced. It was placed in themselves. It was placed in their righteousness. It was placed in their own goodness, their own abilities. And their faith really was weak faith. Everybody here has faith. Even an atheist has faith. Even if, even your atheistic professor, if you have one, has faith. You have to have faith in something if you don't have faith in God. So all of us, all of us exercise faith to one degree or another. The question is, am I, am I putting my faith in the right object? In this case, in the right person. Timothy Keller tells a, a, a story, it's an illustration, and I want to exaggerate a little bit. It talks about two men who are climbing a mountain, and they get stuck. They can't go back down, they can't go back up. The only option is to hop over onto a ledge, and there's a ledge to the left, and there's a ledge to the right. If they can get to one of those ledges, and it's a pretty simple little hop, then they can climb their way to safety, no problem. When the guy says, look, that ledge on the left, I think that's the right ledge. That's the one we ought to hop on. I'm confident it's gonna hold us up. This is gonna be a cakewalk, no problems. Just a little skip over there, and we'll be off the mountain. The other guy says, I hate you. I hate you for inviting me to come along on this mountain climbing expedition. I am scared out of my mind. We're going to die. We're going to die. I can't believe I let you do this. And the guy's just shaking. He's petrified. He goes, and I see that left, that ledge that you were talking about on the left, but I see this other ledge here on the right, and I think maybe the one on the right is the one to jump onto. But, you know, I'll probably jump on it and die, but I think that's the right one. One, two, three, they both jump. The one guy who's so confident jumps on the ledge to the left and it breaks off right away and he falls to his death. The other guy who's just shaking and nervous, he jumps off the ledge on the right and when he lands on it, the guy is just shaking but the ledge doesn't move. And he climbs to safety. Now what saved that man? His faith or the ledge? The ledge is what saved him. Faith was simply his transfer of trust, as shaky as it was that ledge. That's why one of the people in in the Gospels says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Have you ever been at that place in your life where you say, I believe, but boy, I'm still struggling with unbelief in my life. Anybody besides me? So they're talking about in the video. Great faith, it doesn't mean that you have to have great faith in order for God to do something for you. First, you've got to trust God. God then increases your faith. Look at the disciples as they begin their journey to follow Jesus. Did they have great faith right away? Absolutely not. I mean, they get out on a boat in a storm with Jesus, see him calm the storm, and they say, who is this that even the winds obey him? It was like they were becoming more and more aware. That's why we say, join us on the journey so you'll come to know who Jesus is. Travel, do life with Jesus, you'll become convinced of who he is. But still, at some point, you've got to make that move. You've got to be willing to trust. It reminds me of uh, a book that was written called Severe Mercy. The author Sheldon Van Aken and his wife, he's now passed away, describe their relationship with C.S. Lewis. 
And how C.S. Lewis influenced them to put their faith in Christ. But in severe mercy, he writes these words. Listen carefully. He says, I began to see a gap between the possible and the proved. It would take faith to cross it. How? I didn't want to do that. If I was going to stake my whole life on the risen Christ, I didn't want there to be any gap between the possible and the proven. I wanted proof. I wanted letters of fire across the sky that Jesus is risen. Then I suddenly realized, my God, there was also a gap behind me as well. I couldn't prove Jesus was God, but by God, I certainly couldn't prove he was not. This was not to be born. I realized I could not reject Jesus without a great step of faith. But then I began to realize I could not go ahead without a great step of faith. There was only one thing to do. Once I had seen the gap behind me, it was every bit as big as the gap before me. I went across the gap before me to Jesus. If you go to Britain or any place influenced by Britain, if you're at a subway, you're getting ready to go on the train, you always see a little sign that says, mind the gap. It's about this big. <laughs> mind the gap. You're going to have to step over it. Your faith may be shaky. You may have doubt. I'm encouraging you to go ahead and step in and step on. And your faith will begin to grow as you see Jesus at work in and around your life. By the way, what arouses faith? What, what stimulates faith? What activates faith? You know what activates faith? Loss of control. Loss of control. What makes muscles stronger and bigger? Resistance, right? Lifting weights. What makes faith stronger and greater? Resistance, which comes with loss of control. The centurion loses control. He can't do anything. He can't buy his servant's health. So he goes in search of one who heals and puts faith in the one who heals and experiences the miracle. How many of you, besides me and Colin, are control freaks? Are you a control freak, Colin? I thought you might be, all right? I'm a control freak. Hi, I'm Dale, and I'm a control freak. You're control freaks, too. How many of you won't admit you're a control freak? Well, we just solved that issue, didn't we? All right? We're all control freaks, right? We hate not being in control of school, grades, sports, job, relationships, emotions, whatever. We hate that. Yet when we lose control, it's a prime opportunity to trust, to have faith. And as believers, those of us who are followers of Jesus, when we lose control, rather than getting angry, bitter, and upset, we ought to say, thank you, God, I'm working out today. <laughs> I get to work out today. I get, to, I get to grow my faith by just accepting you're in control and letting go of this and surrendering to you and trusting you. That's why we encourage you to have your adopt seven list. This list of people that you are praying for, this list of people that you are going to serve, and the list of people that if God leads you, you share your faith with. Because, listen, all of us experience times in our life when we lose control. And believe it or not, that sometimes is the best time to interact with somebody about God, but you need to be in a relationship with them first. Because that's when we start looking for answers. And that's when you can say, hey, I've had shaky faith, I've had times in my life, but you know what? I trust in Christ and he brought me through. God is real, God is true. Saving faith. But there's another person in this text who wants to help us understand faith, and she's a scandalous individual. Rated R. 
Luke chapter 7, look at the end, all right? Look at the end. There is a woman here, and this woman is a very immoral woman. It says when, in verse 36, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So here's a religious guy who's interested in who Jesus is. We learn later on in the text that he probably thinks that Jesus is a prophet. And he wants to know the prophet. He wants to prophet on his team. If you knew of a prophet, you'd want to get to know them too, right? Direct link to God. Verse 37, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life. Now, some scholars like to sanitize the Bible, clean it up, you know, a sinful woman. Quickly, let's move on from there. When it says this woman's a sinful woman, it means that she had a history. She had a habit. This woman is probably a prostitute. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life, lived means it was ongoing, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. So she crashes the party. She is an uninvited guest. This is a disaster in the making, if you're one of those religious leaders. Now, let me explain something. When it talks about the little, the little alabaster jar, it's not some big jar. It's a very small one that they actually, the women wore around their neck. It had a long, skinny neck to it. They put the perfume in it, and the perfume was very expensive, so evidently business was good for her. She could afford this. But the neck was built in such a way that you could never empty the perfume out. You would have to break it. It was kind of your savings, because it was so expensive. You could sell it. And many of the women would wear it on a chain or rope around their neck. Here's why. Back then, they didn't have deodorant. And so if you're a woman and a prostitute, I mean, if you're a prostitute, a woman, and you are trying to turn tricks, all right, you depend on your looks, you depend on your body, you depend on your attractiveness, and you depend on smelling good. It was a tool in her trade. It was part of her life, part of her identity. She comes into that room. There have been people that would have known her. Perhaps some have known her very well. This is an upsetting experience. It says, as she stood behind him at his feet, remember they had low-lying tables, not chairs, tables like we have. They had cushions instead of chairs. They would actually lay at the table on their left hand. The left hand was considered unclean. I'm left-handed, but I've gotten past that. All right? And they would eat with the right hand. Their feet would extend out from behind. So she's now standing at his feet in this text. Verse 38, as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, so she's now weeping, Tears are pouring down, cascading down her cheeks. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair. Stop. We have to understand something here. There's something very intimate, very provocative that's going on here. Back in those days, if you were a woman and were married, you did not wear your hair down. You kept your hair up. You kept it covered. The only time you let your hair down was in the intimacy of your bedroom with your husband. So to let the hair down like that was a very intimate thing. In fact, the rabbi said if a wife does that in public, that's grounds for divorce. To the very day, some of the Orthodox women still wear their hair under a wig or will wear a wrapping around their hair. This woman lets her hair down. And as one scholar suggests, maybe this is the first time she's ever let her hair down for free. Is she propositioning Jesus in public? Yes, but not for sex, for forgiveness, for love, and for grace. And she wiped 
them, his feet with her hair, and kissed them and poured, broke that jar open. And when she did that, it was like she was pouring her whole identity. She was pouring her control out on Jesus. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, I thought he was, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Let's say that together like a Pharisee would, right? She is a sinner. One, two, three. She is a sinner. You guys did that pretty good. I'm guilty of it. Are you? You ever been someplace? Job, school, event, the mall, coffee shop, airport. Saw somebody and right away, right away in your mind you judge them. Ooh, he's a sinner. She's a sinner. Hear that language they're using? Look at the way they're dressed. Look what they got written all over their bodies. Look at their attitude. Look at the way they carry themselves. He, she is a sinner. As though you and I are not. As though you and I are not. We're all sinners. And Jesus does not retract his feet. Jesus does not flinch. Jesus answered and said, Simon, probably got his attention. I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Remember that. He forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon said it. I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. Custom of the day, to wash the feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You do not give me a kiss, customary to this very day in the Middle East, to give a kiss on the cheek to a guest. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, custom in that day, it symbolized refreshment. But she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. You know what Jesus is saying to Simon? Simon, this ought to be you. You ought to let your hair down. You ought to be on your knees. You ought to be weeping tears of repentance and brokenness and wiping my feet with your tears because you realize that today, God, the God of the universe has traveled a really long ways to be a guest at your home. And you don't see it. Here's a woman, unworthy, yes, sinful, immoral, and she can recognize who's here today. Yeah, sometimes I wonder if Jesus showed up if we'd recognize him. I bet you he wouldn't come in a suit and a tie. I bet you he wouldn't show up with any kind of glitter, any kind of fanfare. Would we recognize him? Would his words and his works, his gentleness, who are the people who tend to recognize Jesus? The people who have come to the end of themselves. Remember Peter in that boat with the fish flopping all over the place? Read Luke 5 or go back and listen to the first message in the series. When he finally realizes who's in the boat with him, he fell to his knees and said, get away from me, I'm a sinner. The leper who is desperate buries his face in the ground and asks to be healed. 
The paralyzed man dropped in front of Jesus. The centurion, Gentile. You notice it's all outsiders. It's all the rabble of society who seem to recognize who Jesus is, but the most religious don't because they're so into the religion. So I said a couple weeks ago, Jesus brings an end to religion. Makes it all about himself. Go back to the text here again. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Best word she ever heard. Your sins are forgiven. How many of you owe money, mortgage, car, debt of some sort? Let me see your hands. How would you feel if somebody came today and paid off your entire debt? How many would be happy? You would be happy. I would be happy. But for that person to pay your debt off, they would have to use their own money, wouldn't they? It would cost them something. When Jesus says you're forgiven, it costs them something. Remember that, it costs them something. He doesn't just say you're forgiven and it's done. It costs him his life on the cross. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Who is Jesus? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Not faith in and of itself, but a faith that was stimulated by the presence of Jesus because she believed who he was. She trusted him and he healed her. You know, Jesus came a long, long ways to love you and me and to forgive us. He put on human skin. He came to live amongst us in our pitiful conditions and situations in order to save us, in order to heal us. And every time I think about this woman's story, I think about I think about a legend, the legend of Abba Abraham. Abba means father. Abba Abraham began his life by leaving life behind as he knew it. He went out into the desert, became one of the great desert fathers. He found a cave, and in the cave he built a little room for himself, and there he lived off of water, vegetables, and fruit. That's all he ate. There he focused on worshiping God. There he studied the scriptures. There he prayed, and there he often fasted. Soon people started going to the desert to seek out Abba Abraham, to have him pray for them, to have him comfort them, to have him speak to them about the Holy Scriptures. Abba Abraham had a brother who had a daughter, and the daughter's mother had died, and then the brother died, leaving her an orphan. Her name was Mary, and so he took her in. He built her a separate little living quarters, and I mean very little in that cave. And there Abraham taught her to pray, taught her to worship God, taught her to read the scriptures. As the years went by, she grew into the most beautiful, beautiful young woman. One day a monk came to visit Abraham to inquire for wisdom. He couldn't help notice this beautiful woman. 
While Ab Abraham went out to get some vegetables and fruit to share with him in a meal, he was overcome with his lust and he seduced her and had his way with her. And afterwards, she felt so guilty, so ashamed. She thought to herself, how will I ever, ever look into my uncle's eyes again? And she ran away. In the weeks and months that followed, Ab Abraham learned what happened. And every visitor that came to him, he would ask them, do you know where Mary is? Have you heard of a young girl who's run away? And finally one day, one visitor said, yes. I know of a Mary. She lives in a distant city. She lives in a room of a tavern. There she works with the owner as a prostitute. At that moment, Abba Abraham knew that he had to go to the city to rescue his niece. But he couldn't go dressed like he was. She'd recognize him from a distance and she would run. So he did the oddest thing. He put on the clothes of a, of a military officer and it felt so odd to him. He was a man of peace, not a man of war. And he knew he'd have to play the part of the kind of man that would seek out a prostitute. So when he arrived at the city and found the tavern, he swung the door wide open. He said, I've come a long way for the love of Mary. Where is that wench? He ordered some beers and drank alcohol before. He had to force it down. But he had to convince them that he was one of them. Then he ordered a steak. He hadn't tasted meat for so many years it was repulsive, but he made himself eat it, all the while bellowing out, I've come a long way for the love of Mary. Convinced the tavern owner, brought her over. She didn't recognize Abba Abraham, but he recognized her. Ah, she looked rough and callous and worn. Like a permanent shadow of shame had settled across her countenance. He stood up from the table where he was sitting. He said, I've come a long way for the love of Mary. And he slipped his arm around her waist. She took him by the hand and led him up the stairs to her room. He sat down on a stool and she knelt down there in front of him and began to unlace his shoes. And that's when he took his hand and cupped it around her chin and turned her face toward him so that their eyes met. And he looked into her eyes and said, I've come a long way for the love of Mary. And in that instance, she knew who he was. And she just crumpled in tears. And Abba Abraham scooped her up and carried her back home where he loved her with the purest love, where he showered grace and mercy and forgiveness on her. Soon people began going into the desert not to see Abba Abraham, but to see Mary. Because Mary knew how they felt, how broken they were, how hurt they were. He knew their past. She could understand their past. She could love on them and she could tell the story of how grace and love changed her life. It could change their lives too. 
Jesus came a long way for your love. I love how Calvin Miller, the author, describes the love of God. He describes it in a question. The question is very simple. How could I ever live without you? How could I ever live without you? Would you bow your heads with me, please? You know, we want to start offering more times in our service for healing. Not just physical healing, but the healing of the soul, which is oftentimes the greatest wound. And perhaps you need some healing in your soul. In a couple of minutes, I'll ask you to stand. And the team's going to sing a beautiful song. And I want this to be a time for you to bring your burdens to God. And your burdens could mean anything. I know Marsh and I have such a burden for our prodigal child. We have such a burden for a loved one of ours, a friend of ours who's got a pretty serious situation with cancer. And sometimes, boy, carrying those burdens is so defeating, so draining. It is so good to be able to lay them at the feet of Jesus. So I don't know what your burden is. It may be guilt. It may be, it may be shame. It may be anxiousness. It may be tiredness. It may be weariness. It may be loneliness. It may be caretaking. It may be a mental, emotional battle you're fighting. It may be something that was done to you. I don't know what it is, but would you be willing today to bring it to the feet of Jesus and just lay it there and just become broken before him? Like Colin taught us earlier, just say, I am here. Would you touch me, Jesus? And then I'd like to pray for you. So it's just, it's, it's, an, uh, it's a time for you. you I want to invite you to come forward if you're comfortable. I want to invite you to kneel here in the front with me if you want to. Or you can stand here in the front. Or if there's room, you can turn around and kneel where you are. I wish we had kneelers sometimes. You can just kneel in your pew, upstairs, in your chair, whatever you want to do. Just, why hang on to it? Can you put your pride aside? Don't be like the Pharisees. Just lay it before Jesus. Let's stand.